listen to this message, you will be challenged and encouraged through God's Word. Here at Heartsease Family Life Church, it has always been our desire to see people's lives totally impacted and changed. His Word promises to accomplish that. For more information in regards to our church, you can call us at 225-274-1607 or visit us on the web at www.hflc.us. We look forward to hearing from you. Be blessed now as you listen to God's Word. of vision. If you want a sneak peek of the power of vision, consider this, one man with a mouse. One man with a mouse. What am I talking about? Walt Disney World. Come on now. One man with a mouse touched the entire world. There's probably hardly a family today that doesn't know in some shape or form or have experienced in some shape or form, Walt Disney and something to do with Mickey Mouse. What a vision when people looked at him and said, you're crazy. Flowers don't have faces. They don't talk. Mice don't talk. You're crazy. Who do you think you are? He was even fired from his first job because he didn't have a great enough imagination. But one man had a vision. And what we see is the power of vision that even today after his death, It's still expanding today. They're still growing. They're still adding new dimensions. And I want to tell you something. These are not new dimensions that they thought up. These are new dimensions of visions that he already saw, that he already constructed models and plans and had drawings and everything made. Why? Because he had a powerful vision. Can you see the power that's engaged in vision? It unites people together. Come on, it builds people together in task and in heart to accomplish greatness together. And there's something that we penned here in this church when it comes to vision and we teach this through our iConnect journey and we love everyone to be a part of that and to go through that. The next steps of how to be involved where we share our vision and we share what it means to serve and how to commit to the house. But here's one thing we teach and that is this, are you ready? Without you... Vision is just an idea. Come on, it's just an idea. It's just a pen. It's just something written down on paper. It's a hope. It's a dream. It's a plan. But with you, vision becomes a reality. It becomes reaching. It becomes touching. It becomes impacting. What does that mean? Vision needs you. I said vision needs you. You need to be a part of vision. Proverbs 29 verse 18 says these words, when people do not what? Accept divine guidance. This is from the New Living Translation. When people do not accept divine guidance, say with me, vision. That's what it is. They run wild. But whoever obeys the Lord, law is joyful. Notice this, that when we don't follow vision, we're going to be out of control. But when we come under vision, come on, there's happiness, there's joy, there's peace that can be fulfilled in our life. So without you, vision is just an idea. With you, vision becomes a reality. But there's one more step. With all of us, 
with every one of us partnering together, vision becomes a culture. Come on, it becomes our DNA. It becomes who we are. What does that mean? It creates the proper atmosphere where God can truly touch people's lives. You stepped in today into a culture of an atmosphere of God's presence. Why? Because people have come together and says, that's what we want to see. That's what we're going to produce in this church. So vision is so important for every one of our lives. And I'm so glad, not only for my life personally, but for a church, we believe in the importance of vision. And we want you to catch the vision. And today, what God has really laid on my heart is really, as we talk about vision, to ask each and every one of us a question. To ask us a question as a church body but also to ask us a question individually. And here's the question that I feel challenged to ask you today. And that is this, what will define us? What will define us? What will define us? Individually, what is it that's going to define my life? As a church, corporately, what is going to define us? And the reason why I ask that question is because I believe right now in the times that we are living, we are living in a cultural shift. Right now there's a cultural shift that's going on. As you can turn on the news and you can listen to the media, you can follow online, you can see all around us today there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of hatred. There's a lot of adversity. There's a lot of unrest. There's a lot of things that are happening and it used to be that we were reading of them happening in foreign countries. But now we're reading of them happening all around us, even in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our state, in our city, in this nation, things are happening. One of the greatest adversities, one of the greatest trials, one of the greatest acts of hatred really that we're facing right now is in the realm of race. There's a racial tension right now that we hoped would be a thing of the past. We hoped that there would be something that we would move on beyond, that we would live in forgiveness, in acceptance and we would, but just things are happening. Just two weeks ago a massacre took place, I know you know, in Charleston, North Carolina as nine People, innocent people were gunned down as they were worshipping and praising God. And what have we seen through that, through the news media? We see that it was a deliberate attempt by someone, by the hatred that is inspired in the hearts of people to try and incite a war, to try and incite adversity, to try and incite division amongst this nation. And other like things have happened and are happening all around us. And then just on Friday, June the 26th, we saw in this nation and witnessed new laws being passed that totally contradict and totally oppose the truth of God's word in regards to the definition of marriage, which is one man with one woman. Let me say that again. God's definition is one man with one woman. As we see man trying to change the morality compass, shifting things around for what reason? To try and facilitate their sin, 
to try and condone the sin and the choices and the decisions that they are making for their life. Now with no fear of judgment. Why? Because they now believe that they have the law behind them. So when they have the law, that's all that they need. But I want you to know something today. Whatever may be legalized, and you can legalize something, but doesn't make it right when God clearly says it's wrong. Let me just say that again. Whatever may be legalized by man, by the high courts, by the supreme courts, it doesn't matter and it doesn't change what God's word says is right and that which is wrong. Look at Matthew 10 verse 28. I believe this is what we need to consider when we look at things like this. And that is this, we do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather we are to fear him, speaking of God, who is able to destroy both soul and body into hell. We've got such a fear of what people's opinion is and what people say. That we're so caught up in the fact of, well, I have to go along with this and that because they're going to exclude me. They're going to... God says, don't worry about what man can do in your life. What you need to be concerned about, what you need to examine your life in reference to is, how are you bef- between you and God? Are you living according to His Word? Because that's the standard that we have to live by. And here's the problem. Man wants to determine their lifestyle, and the way they live. And how are they doing that? By changing laws. But laws never change God and what His Word clearly instructs us to do. So when we see culture shifting around us, the tension, laws being changed, what do we do? What should we do? What will we choose? Here's the question again. What will we choose to define us? By the way, if you look at what's happening today in our society, if you look what's happening in our world, this is nothing new. It's nothing new. From the very beginning of time, we have seen experiences and circumstances and situations like this unfold as man has tried to silence the truth of God, to disrupt the plan of God that he has for mankind. In fact, even the Bible is full of such examples. And what we would discover through reading the Word of God and through history is this, that no matter the opposition and the struggle, how great and how powerful it was, that time and time again, the gospel emerged greater and stronger. As a result of the opposition and that which would try to extinguish the light, the glorious gospel of Christ, just like with Hitler so many years ago, he destroyed every Bible that he could get his hands on. Why? Because he regarded the word of God as a threat. But for every Bible he burned, come on, there was more Bibles that would be rising up. Why? Because adversity through circumstances and history and all these things, what? We see that the glorious light of the gospel 
shines brighter than anything that man can ever try to do. So what man has tried to silence, come on, has ended up being screamed from the rooftops. And this cultural shift, I believe, that we're in today is going to be no different if you and I choose to stand upon God's Word and refuse to compromise our beliefs, but to hang true on God. Why? Because here's what we believe and preach here. Are you ready? The darker the night, the brighter the light. The darker the night, the brighter the light. God calls us to be the light. So in the darkness, we can shine brighter. Come on, you weren't lighting fireworks yesterday at three o'clock in the afternoon. Why? Because you couldn't see the beauty and the display of it. But when it is set on the backstand of darkness, wow, you are wowed and you are amazed. Come on, what the enemy wants to be a darkening factor, come on, is just the backstage for the illumination of the gospel of God to radiate out that he can be seen throughout this nation and can be seen throughout this world. And I want you to know something, and that is this, God always has the last say. God will always have the last say. And the last say of this world is going to be revival that's going to sweep out upon this nation from the east to the west, from the north to the south. We're going to see a mighty revival of God's presence just flooding this entirety of this world. But what must we do? What must be our position through all of this? Here's a question for you. Will I change the world or will the world change me? Will I change the world that I live in? Now, I can't impact the entire world, but every one of us lives in a different world from each other. Different friends, different connections, different workplaces, just different neighborhoods. We live in a world. And the question and the challenge for each one of us is, is the world that we live in going to change us? Or are we going to make a stand And change the world that we live in. Remember, culture changes, but God doesn't. There'll be shifts and things may change, but God and His Word remains the same. Remember I said earlier that there are examples in Scripture in regards to what we're facing today. And I want to look at one of those today from the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles today, turn to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read verse 1 through 6, and we're going to just set the the foundation for our message today. Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Let me just stop there, can I? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, King of Judah. Really, if you're reading between the lines here, what has been said here is this. In the third year of a time when the people of God could follow the word of God. When there was no bondage, there was no limitations in their lives, but there was a freedom for them to follow the word of God and to follow his truth. And these words are written some 605 years before the birth of Christ before the Savior was going to come to this world. Why would you say that, Pastor? Because it's amazing that even before Christ came, the enemy did everything he could to try to destroy and disrupt the plan of God. What? For a Savior to come. He did everything within his power because if he could have stopped Jesus from being born and coming to this world, he knew that he could have stopped the word and the plan of God for mankind. 
So we see even 600 years, and it's even earlier recorded through the Scripture. But this particular example that we're going to look at today, 605 years before the birth of Christ, and the enemy is at work trying to disrupt, to change the plan of God. It says that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem to besiege it. Babylon, the Babylonian empire, what you need to understand, was pretty much could be labeled as this, everything completely opposite to what God wanted his children to live by. Everything they lived by, just the the filth, the sacrifices, the multitudes of God, the prostitution, just all the filth and everything that they lived by was detestable and was wrong and was completely, almost totally against everything that God's word stood for. Read on and it says this, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand. Notice something, would you? God allowed it to happen. I want you to see something here. I believe this is an important truth, and we're going to get to the story, trust me, but I think there's some things that are very important that we need to see. There are times in the Word of God that we read that the children of Israel were allowed to be overtaken and put into slavery and put into bondage because they turned away from God. They rebelled against God. It says because of their rebellion, God caused a nation to rise up and took control of them. There is no reference here of that taking place. It just says that God allowed it to happen. I want you to know something today. Are you ready? Nothing happens in this world without God's permission. Now, I didn't say his approval because God doesn't approve of everything that's going on, but nothing happens in this world without the permission of God. You can find that in the book of Job. Read it for yourself because the devil has to report to God and he's standing before God and God says to him, what are you doing? The devil's an open book. He couldn't just do what he wanted and anything he chose. He had to get permission and he asked permission specifically to go after Job and God says, you can touch everything around him, but you can't touch his life. You've got to spare his life. What do we see? Everything in the powers of darkness that Satan does, he has to ask permission for, and he doesn't have complete control over, and he doesn't have complete victory over. So in other words, what are we saying? God's still in charge. Come on, when there's racial tension and there's problems happening all around, God is still in charge. When laws have been changed to contradict contradict the word of God. I want to tell you, God's not scrambling in heaven saying, oh, watch out. What are we going to do? I never saw this coming. Before the foundation of the world, God saw this because he's a God of vision and he's a God of purpose and he's a God with your destiny and my destiny in mind. He knew the time. He knew what was going to be performed. But guess what? He allowed it to happen. And I think you and I need to be reminded of that today. Let me say it another way. Nebuchadnezzar viewed defeating Judah as a victory for his gods. Nebuchadnezzar didn't look at it as God allowing it to happen. He took all the credit for it. 
Wow, look at us. We're big and bad. We steamrolled them and we came in. I want you to know something else. Why would you say that? Because the enemy thinks on June the 26th, the enemy thought two weeks ago in Charleston, North Carolina, that we had a victory. But look again, devil. Come on, look again, devil. Look again, devil. Get the right perspective and the proper. Why? Because God allows these, those things to happen. Why? Because what Satan thinks is a victory, what man thinks is a victory, God hasn't finished yet. God has not finished. Come on, shout amen. Say something in the house today. So let's read on. Verse 2, it says that when Nebuchadnezzar came in, it always amazes me. Where is the first place that he goes? That with some of the articles of the house of God. Isn't it amazing? The first place they defiled, the first place they wanted to, to deface and try to dethrone was the very presence of God. What is the enemy's main target? What is his main threat today? The house of God, the church of God. And he's trying to do everything within his power to silence the voice of the church of God. Because when he silences the voice of the church of God, he extinguishes the light of the gospel to this nation and to this world. And it's amazing, the enemy wants to do everything within his power to defile and to take. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He carries away into his land all the articles, those things that were used to worship the true God. And now he places them before foreign gods, plural between before their gods and he brings them into his treasure house, the house of their gods. Verse 3, then the king instructs Aphanaz, he is the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace. And here's the king. Here's why he would do that. That they might teach them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. In other words, they chose the best of the best. And what did they want to do? They wanted to change their language. They wanted to change their beliefs. They wanted to change the culture of that which they were brought up in. Again, another way that God and the enemy tries to silence the truth of God by turning man against God, against his way, and promoting another way or another truth that is separate from the word of God. That's why there is so much teaching out there now that is so contrary to the word of God. Why? Because the enemy knows if he can get it in people's heart at a young age, they're going to be skeptical, they're going to be cynical, they're going to be anti a God that loves them and has the best for their lives. And he's doing everything he can to promote that propaganda. Come on, to instill that, to change the language of the people of our nation and of our world. In other words, and verse 5, let's read on. And it says, and the king appointed for them a daily provision. Oh, he made it look good for them. Come on, he gave them everything they need. Come on, he bought them new iPads. He gave them Xbox 360s. He gave them PlayStation 12s, whatever number they're up to now. He gave them MacBooks. He gave them flat screen TVs. Everything they wanted. Why? Because he gave them everything that would appeal to the flesh. 
Man, I, I can change my beliefs because I like this. It, it feels good. It looks good. Man, that's kind of boring. And old. This is cool. This is awesome. This is new. This is great. It looks good and it appeals. And Satan has to do it that way. Come on, I said Satan has to do it that way. Because if Satan really showed you who he was, no one would want to be a part of him. He has to deceive people into thinking that he's good. Because if he told you really what he was, read it for yourself. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to kill, steal and destroy. That's all he is, summed up in three words, kill, steal and destroy. That's what he wants to do to every life. And verse, read on, it says that he gave them a daily provision and he gave them all the delicacies. Come on, all the raisin canes, all the TJ ribs and the Copelands and unlimited Starbucks. Everything that they could ever want. All the wine which he drank and for three years he trained them so that, watch this, so that at the end of the time they might serve before the king. Literally to be his puppet. They are trained to please only him. Verse 6, now from amongst those, the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And let me just interject this thought here, if I could, to each and every one of you. As culture changes, as there's a shift in culture, there are some things that can change. I mean, there's some things that can change. I'm glad that how we do church now has changed to how it used to be. I liked church growing up, but you know what? Just to be singing hymns all the time and just to have no life and just for things to be... I'm glad that some things have changed. I'm glad that air conditioning came in. Come on now. I'm glad that electricity came. Come on, anyone glad about things like that? So as things have changed through society, some things have been good. There have been some things that have been good for change. But there are other things that cannot change. There's things that are negotiable and non-negotiable. Look at this. Methods can change, but the message must never change. See, that's what can't change. The methods and the styles and the way we preach and the way we dress may be slightly different. The methods may change. We've got screens. We've got PowerPoint. We've got all those things. Anyone remember the overhead projectors? Anyone remember all those things, the hymnals, all those? Things have changed. Methods have changed. But the message must never change. And what we see now happening in Daniel's time, and really what we see happening right now in our time is this. There's not just a new method that's been preached, but there's a new message that's come in with it also. That's saying, you've got to follow this because it wants to change who we are. It's amazing that we don't know Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. We don't know them by their God-given names, but instead we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Come on, isn't that true? When's the last time you said, hey, what about Daniel and Hananiah? And, and, and we don't. It's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And read why that is, verse 7. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah he gave the name Shadrach. To Mishael he gave the word Meshach. To Azariah he gave the word Abednego. 
We can look at that and say, well, that's kind of cool. They're just given nicknames. They were just given names that fit better their times. No big deal. What's the big deal about it? I want you to know something today. It was a big deal. And it is a big deal. For this reason, when you understand what their names meant. Remember today the question we're asking is, what defines us? What is going to define us? Look at the word Daniel. If you're to look at the word Daniel, the word Daniel literally means this. God is my judge. God is my judge. When his name was changed to Belshazzar, it literally means this, Bel, as in lady. So his masculinity was questioned because now, instead of his name meaning God is my judge, he's now regarded as given a name that is feminine, like lady, Bel. And then also protector of the king, not the king of kings capitalized, but the protector of Nebuchadnezzar or the kings. A different name was given completely to what he was, attacking who God made him to be. And it doesn't end there. As we look at the other names, Hananiah means this. Yahweh, meaning God, that's the Old Testament name for God. God has been gracious. God has been gracious. His name was changed to Shadrach, which means this. I am fearful of God. What? From God being gracious to the fact of now I'm afraid of God. And these are the titles, these are the names that each day they were taught and they were told and their thinking and their way of living was changed now because you're a new person, you have a new name. Michelle, look at it. Who is God? What is God? It was a statement to those around. Come on, there is none like our God. Who is our God? He is great. He is awesome. His name was changed to Meshach, which means I am despised, I am contemptible, and I am humiliated. Wow. And then Azariah, his name means, again, God has helped. The Old Testament, Yahweh has helped. And his name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. Again, a foreign God. So instead of now God helping his life, he's now a servant to something completely against God. Something against the very nature of God. Why is that so important? Because they were given new names to try and change who they were. And culture today wants to do the same thing to us. It's not physically changing our name. But it's trying to make us live by another name instead of the God that we serve. It's trying to make us water down our beliefs and to accept all the cultural differences and the viewpoints of today that we shift away from God is helping me to serving other gods and to following. Do you see, instead of us proclaiming God is gracious and he is great, we're now what? We're, we're now, I'm despised or no, I'm fearful of God, I'm afraid. Culture today is trying to rename us. And to redefine who we are. And I want to just go on record as we talk about the vision of this church. This world is not going to rename this church. This world is not going to rename this church. God's word is still the standard that we are going to preach and we're going to defend at any cost. Because we believe if you're not preaching the truth of God's word, you've got nothing to say. 
Come on, if you're not preaching the truth and the whole truth, then it's not the whole truth. So help us God. We believe that we're going to stand upon the Word of God. Why? Because no matter what the world may do, His truth still remains the standard that we're going to choose to live by. God's Word is as much the truth today as when He inspired and He breathed and He spoke into man and they wrote down and penned the words on the books that we now call the Bible as He breathed into them. That Word of truth is still as powerful and is still as real today. Come on, we're going to be weird. Look at this statement. As a church, we're going to be weird because normal isn't working. Come on, we're going to be weird. Come on, look at your neighbor and say, yeah, you're weird. I can see it. I can see the resemblance. I can see it. I can see it. Why would we say we're going to be weird? If you would notice, and we haven't got time, but let me just mention this. What you've got to realize is is when Jesus showed up on the scene, everything that Jesus taught was completely against the cultures of that day. Jesus taught them to love those that despitefully used them. That was tough. Because in culture, if someone treats you bad, man, you've got every right to treat them bad. Jesus says, no, no, there's a difference. Jesus came in and says, hey, see that adultery thing? If you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're just as guilty. Jesus came in and he took things to a new level. He came in and presented truths in such a way. He says, give to those who want to take from you. If someone says for you to go one mile, you go two miles. If they ask for one shirt off your back, come on, give them your whole wardrobe. Just bless them, lavish on them. People of the day looked and said, man, that's weird. I'm not going to be a part of that. It was so far from normal what he taught. But I want you to know, however weird it may have seemed and however weird it may be still labeled today, it's still that which only produces truth and that which only produces life. It still works today. His word still works today. But they still stand opposed to sin And man's way, come on, God's word still stands opposed to sin and man's way. And that's the reason for the continuous attack. And I want to give you three R's today, just quickly in this message. I want to give you three R's that I believe will really help you to define who you are in your life. Are you ready? R number one, remember, remember. You've got to remember who you are. You've got to remember even further than that. You've got to remember whose you are. Come on, because you and I have been bought with a great price. God bought each one of us and redeemed us with a great price. Who are we? What are we? Come on, we are a child of God. We are called to represent our Father and to live in obedience for Him. He gave His life. We need to remember our calling and we need to remember our salvation. Come on, we need to get grounded. We need to be in the church. I'm telling you, if there's ever a day that the people of God need to run to the house of God, it's right now. Because the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. You need to be under the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God so it can build faith in your life. What is faith? A trust that you can have in God. A relationship with God which identifies who you are. Come on, I'm a child of God. I'm in relationship 
with God. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says, He gave for Himself some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Jump to verse 14. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. There's so many people today who are so fickle. They don't know who they are. They don't know their life in God. They don't know the truth of God. So when something comes, they like what it sounds like and they just jump in with two feet. Come on. It doesn't matter. The Bible says in Galatians, even if an angel from God comes and preaches another gospel to you, let him be damned, the Bible says. Let him be accursed. Because if it's not from the mouth of God and the oracles of God, it's not the truth of God. But we've got so many people who are wishy-washy and someone posts something on social media. So, oh my God, it has to be right. Come on, we need to get back to the Word of God and remember who we are and whose we are, what God has called us from and what God has called us to. And then when we understand that, we're going to make a stand. So we can speak the truth. That's what it goes on to say in verse 14 and 15. That we can speak the truth in love. How? Through relationship. That we can grow up in all things as He is the head. Christ. He's the head. He's the one that's in control of our lives. So let's look back at our story. Remember the story of Daniel? Look what it says in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. It says this. But Daniel purposed in his heart. Daniel purposed in his heart. It didn't say the whole nation. It said one person purposed in his heart. I'm telling you right now, it just takes one person to make a difference. Your life can make a massive difference. And when every one of us purposes, think of the change that can happen all around us. What did Daniel purpose? He purposed he would not defile himself with the portions of the king's delicacies. He wouldn't take that which was wrong, that which was foreign, that which wasn't allowed. He would not partake in that. Why? Because he remembered who he was. Even given a new name and in a culture as things were shifting around and being taught different beliefs. One day he stood up and said, you know what? All this stuff ain't doing it for me. I'm telling you what did do it for me. That was Jesus Christ. He made a declaration and he said, I'm going to purpose in my life. You've got to have a purpose in your life. If not, you're going to defile yourself. Come on. What have you defined for yourself? Come on, what have you said is going to be the purpose of my life? What purpose have you made in your life? Because I'm telling you right now, if you don't stand for something, you're going to bow and fall for everything. Here's your second R. Are you ready? You've got to reaffirm. You've got to reaffirm your convictions. In other words, you've got to obey God's word. You've got to obey God's word. You know, a lot of people say this. Well, you know what, Pastor? It's okay for you not to do those things, but I'm not personally convicted by that. I think one of the biggest lies that's come into the church through the course of time is what we've called personal conviction. Because I believe in personal conviction in this way, that God personally convicts each and every one of us. But what we've labeled personal conviction is now is that I determine the convictions that I live by in my life. 
that my convictions may be different to yours. So in essence, what we're saying is we're picking and choosing what we please from the word of God. So what may convict you doesn't convict me. So I can watch this and I can be engaged in this and I can do this and I can follow. Why? Because I'm not personally convicted. Listen, it's not a personal conviction. It's a personal choice. It's choices that we are made. Why? Because God's word doesn't tailor make what he says for you any different to everyone else. What God says is the same to the whosoever, to each and every one of us. And we need to reaffirm our convictions and look again at our lives and say, what is it that I'm choosing and what is it that I'm doing? But really, God, what is it that your word says that I need to do? On Sunday, we talked about seven distinguishing factors during our Elevate Night of what really would distinguish our life. And one of the seven distinguishing factors, we looked at this, and it's this. Your values will determine your decisions. The values you live by is that which can determine the decisions of your life. We talked about how you've got to know your values. You've got to know what God values and what God's word says. So what? Your decisions will follow that because it's not hard to stick with decisions when they're based on values. Come on now, a lot of people are swayed. Why? Because they don't know what they believe. When you know what you believe and you've reaffirmed your convictions and you're standing upon those truths, guess what? Your, de- your decisions will not sway. Why? Because that's what I believe and therefore that's who I am. Stop apologizing for the values that you live for. Before. Stop apologizing for the fact that you live for God's word. Stop apologizing and don't let the enemy beat you up to think that you're old-fashioned, that you're, you're judgmental, that you're this and you're that, because you are not. Values are that, and they're things of our lives that we should be prepared to die for at least fight for and say, listen, let me tell you something. Man, we're going to fight over that because I believe this to be so true. Remember Cassie Burnell years ago in Colorbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, in the library? A gun was held to her head as those two young men went in and massacred all those children in that school. And they gave her another chance and they said, do you still believe in God? And she looked at them and she said, yes, I still believe. And that was the last words recorded that came out of her mouth as a gun shot and killed that young lady in the library that day. She could have so easily said, no, I don't believe. But she had values of her life that were so strong that she was prepared even to die for those because she knew God was the Lord and Savior of her life and nothing else mattered. Your values need to be your core belief of your life. You've got to have true resolve in your heart. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. Come on, you've got to know what you're going to stand for in your house. I've got to say some things, and I really need to get to a close, but let me just say this. Living by convictions or values doesn't make you judgmental. Come on, it doesn't make you judgmental. It just means that you stand for something. A lot of people on social media I know have been attacking Christians and saying, you're just so judgmental, you're just this and that. You're not following after Christ because Jesus loved everyone. He had compassion over everyone. He did this, he did that. It's quite interesting, I think, when people would say that, that Jesus never condemned anyone and he loved everyone because they are totally misquoting the word of God. Notice this statement. 
Jesus did accept everyone, but he didn't accept their behavior. Come on, Jesus did accept everyone, but he didn't accept their behavior. Really what people are misquoting is the story of when the lady was caught in the act of adultery and she was brought to Jesus in John chapter 8, and you can read it for yourself. But Jesus, when she was presented before him, turned to all the religious leaders who wanted to kill her and stone her because that was the penalty of that, that the law demanded. And Jesus said to them that day, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. Then the Bible says that Jesus just stooped down and he began to write in the sand. And as he's writing in the sand, One by one, they all leave. And then Jesus stands up and it's just him and it's just her together. And Jesus says to her these words, where have your accusers gone? And I want to jump into the passage, so I quote it exactly right. John 8, verse 11, she said to Jesus, there is no one, Lord. And and Jesus, in other words, there's no accusers except you, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. But notice this, but go and sin no more. One translation says, go and leave your life of sin. What was Jesus saying? I don't condemn you, but you need to change the way you live. Come on, if you want to be accepted, you've got to change the behavior and the choices and the decisions that you make in your life. So come on, don't let people beat you up saying that you're not loving, that you're not compassionate. Come on, we are loving and compassionate and we'll love you and we'll accept you. But guess what? We love who you are, but we can't tolerate and love the sin. And that's what Jesus says. We're not condemning anyone. But guess what? There's a change that needs to take place in every heart and life, and you don't have to be rude about it. You can just make a stand. And I haven't got time today, but let me just give you the last R uh, today. And we'll try and finish the message second service. So if you want to stay, then you'll maybe get it all. But here it is. The last R is this. Resist the enemy daily. Come on, you've got to resist the enemy daily. There's going to be opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for you to bow. The enemy will never leave you alone. But you've got to stand up. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says you've got to be sober and vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, who he may destroy. But what does it say in verse 9? You've got to resist him steadfast in the faith. There's a spiritual warfare that you and I are engaged in every day all around us. What have we got to do? We've got to constantly resist him. Ephesians talks about putting on the whole armor of God. Why? Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers on high. Come on, this isn't a legal thing. This isn't a man. This isn't a flesh and blood thing. This is a principality and power thing. So what do we do? We've got to resist the powers of darkness each and every day as we stand in Christ, as we believe Christ, as we hold true to his word. So here's the question. What's going to define you? What are you going to allow to shape you and fashion and form who you are? I'm telling you, you've got to remember who you are and whose you are. Come on, you've got to reaffirm your convictions and stand up by your core beliefs. 
And you've got to be prepared every day to resist the powers of darkness that want to come in to try and sway your mind, to sway your belief, to sway who you are. So he will change your name and who you become. Come on, we're not going to have our name changed. What's going to define us? God's word and God's truth. And his truth is still that which will set us free. Would you stand to your feet with me today?